This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Knowledge at Wharton on Business Radio. Here's your host, Dan Loney. The Supreme Court saw one of its longest tenured current justices pass away over the weekend. Antonin Scalia was somewhat brash in many of his dissenting opinions. He was someone who relied on the First Amendment to be guided by much of his thinking, but he is also well known for rankling many who did not exactly necessarily go along with his beliefs. To take a look at the life and times of uh, Antonin Scalia, we are joined here in the Studio by Wharton Professor Eric Ortz, Professor of Legal Studies and Business Ethics. He's also faculty director of the Initiative for Global Environmental Leadership, and he's also author of the book Business Persons, A Legal Theory of the Firm. And then uh, also joining us here in the studio is Carrie Colonisi, who is a professor of law and political science here at the University of Pennsylvania. Gentlemen, great to see you again. Good to see you. Good to see you. Thanks very much. Uh, lasting memories of Antonin Scalia. Eric? Well, I think uh, there's a couple things that are going to be his legacy. One is, uh, you know, in terms of his jurisprudence, I think you could uh, you would look at his uh, commitment to something called textualism, the idea that you look at the statute itself uh, and the language of the statute to determine uh, how to uh, decide a case. Uh, related to that is uh, he he very much disagreed with the idea of looking to legislative history to interpret a statute. And I think he rightly, and this has been influential, I think this is now uh, pretty much standard, he, he saw that a lot of that legislative history was manufactured mm-hmm. by lobbyists or, or, or the politicians themselves to kind of slant how it would be interpreted. So that's one thing. And then finally, originalism, the idea that you do not interpret constitutional provisions or rights expansively, you look to what did the authors uh, of the Constitution or of a statute actually intend. You don't have the idea of a living Constitution Mm -hmm. where you have changes. And this is what, of course, uh, leads into his controversial, uh, you know, some controversial decisions. Uh, Instead, you, you, you look to what he called a dead Constitution. And that is just the what did the founders say about it, and and that kind of thing? So those are the, I think those are the three uh, main things I would I would point to in terms of his uh, legal legacy. Kerry, well, uh, obviously we're mourning the loss of a major public figure and public servant uh, who distinguished himself in the court, but also uh, in a number of other positions of public service throughout his life. Uh, I think one theme that uh, is underappreciated is how much uh, Justice Scalia was a lover and believer of democracy. Uh And I think underlying the kinds of theories and approaches that Eric just summarized and that run through Justice Scalia's opinions is a strong belief in the democratic process. And, and he wanted to be faithful to the democratic process in, in, in making uh, the judiciary more humble and limited. And that undergirds his commitment to originalism in the constitutional area and to textualism in the legislative history area. It's somewhat ironic uh, that he is someone who really, uh, I think, uh, deep down believe that the judiciary should be humble when yeah. uh, he was himself someone who could be very flamboyant and combative. Also, of course, in- 
incredibly charming and uh, and really deep down a, a, a good person. And uh, uh, yet it was somewhat at odds. Some he's he's a he's a very complex was a very complex man, and I think that's one of the reasons why he was so uh, influential. Well, it's interesting you bring that up because we were talking about this before we went on the air, and it's a great point to bring up is that obviously Justice Scalia as the entity on the bench really in many cases was a lot different than than Antonin Scalia the person that that a lot of people knew and he in he may not have agreed with what happened on the other side of the court in terms of opinions but there were many cases where he was very friendly with the other justices that didn't have that same opinion right i mean one of the court's uh, so-called you know liberal leaning justices uh, uh, ruth bader ginsburg was a close friend of his they yeah. celebrated new year's eve together for many years uh, he was uh, a family man uh, and and as i say in person could be very charming and supportive of his clerks uh, you know he would also make a point of of having one of his clerks be uh, more liberal leaning uh, to make sure that he could could uh, flesh out and hear out all of the arguments uh, in, in in a case but his his background personally very much a devout catholic really did play obviously into some of the opinions that that he brought forth on abortion you know on 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 same sex marriage you know these these were things that obviously did play out as part of his legacy as being a justice on the court well, I think he would. Uh, I think that's one interpretation. I think he would probably have disagreed with that okay. and said, "I hate, uh, you I know, hate my to get religion, that disagreement from him." <laughs> I, I my religion is. With uh, that. <laughs> I think he would. I don't know what Kerry thinks about that, but I think, I think he uh, had a view that uh, he was very strong First Amendment supporter yeah. for one thing, and uh, I think he would wa- not want to agree that his opinion on, on oh, the gay rights case, which is a very controversial one, I think his uh, view was not that this was a religious issue, but that it was a jurisprudential issue, that you don't find a new right on the, under the Constitution in this way, and it, that he would have had a secular argument pointing to the theories of democracy and legal theory that, that, that Kerry mentioned. Now, you might there are a number of uh, you, you might say, well, that's not the case. Maybe, uh, maybe, maybe the re- maybe his religion was affecting his decision in, in some other way. Yeah. But I think he would have at least said, uh, taken taken some issue with that. Um, Carry on. Yeah. Sorry. Well, you know, uh, he, he he surely was uh, you know not supportive of, of as a policy matter of certain uh, socially liberal or progressive issues. I think that's probably without question. But uh, and, and, and it's certainly then some of his uh, judicial theories aligned with those policy views. But I don't know that they drove them. I will say one thing, and your listeners in particular might be interested in this, even though Justice Scalia is very much aligned with a conservative viewpoint, mm-hmm. when it comes to issues of concern to the business community, Justice Scalia was fairly consistently supportive of regulatory state that we have. And in a number of key decisions that he actually authored in the majority, yeah. uh, he supported uh, the uh, power of administrative agencies in ways that uh, don't align maybe uh, with uh, with the broader conservative agenda. 
Yeah, just on that point, uh, he had a he had a nice phrase that I came across recently. Uh, the, there was a report uh, actually in the New York Times today about the dissenting opinion in the gay rights case that we were talking about. Yeah. And uh, Scalia had used the example of the non-representativeness of the Supreme Court, including himself. So he was uh, saying, you know, four of them all come from New York City, and so he said, what kind of what kind of court is that to make the law? And that kind of <laughs> argument, but it. Uh, I think it goes to uh, it goes to this uh, this uh, this general idea that we were uh, that we're talking about, and uh, with respect to Kerry's point about business, in that he also uh, he also expressed a view that tall building lawyers. We had enough tall building <laughs> lawyers on the court now. He was he he wasn't happy that uh, too many all the uh, apparently all the well all the current members of the Supreme Court were graduated from either Yale or Harvard. He thought you needed more diversity than that. There are too many from the East Coast. He wanted someone from the Southwest. and Or how come there's none in the middle of the country? Yeah. So it's interesting in the article I mentioned uh, that that's interesting. He almost was writing a guide to who you should appoint after me right. in, a, in yeah. a different way of interpreting it. And and that, of course, goes to the issue in the news now of who is, who is that going to be? Is there going to be a new Supreme Court justice? What are their qualifications? They might not be from New York City, <laughs> but we'll see. But he was very much concerned about uh, important decisions for the country being made by unelected judges. Yeah. Uh, and in, in his uh, dissent in the gay marriage case, uh, he, you know, he referred referred to this specifically, I worry about a, just a majority of nine lawyers making fundamental decisions for, uh, for the country. Uh, that's not inconsistent, really, with his position with respect to the regulatory state, though, too. Again, he really adopted a, a series of views that, that means that the, the judiciary should be sort of in the backdrop. They should huh. settle cases when it's very clear and on, on the rule of law issues, but otherwise we should let the legislature rule, and if the legislature delegates authority to administrative agencies to regulate business, well, you know, he was supportive of that. Although, you know, one, one case that we, uh, we might talk about, too, is the stay in the um, Environmental Protection Agency's regulation on the, on the uh, clean power plan, mm -hmm. which uh, I believe Scalia was in the, in the majority in granting a stay, which was somewhat unprecedented, uh, at least according to, to some uh, commentators. Sure. Uh, unprecedented, and, and yet we don't really know anything about why it was issued. It right, was, no opinion. Uh, no opinion at all. Uh, we uh, we do. I mean, you can look at the case though and see that it, the EPA was actually uh, binding uh, states to adopt plans as early as September of this year, and there were some really serious uh, legal questions. I mean, ultimately, that may work in the favor of the government. They may have the better of the argument. Yeah. But there are some serious questions. And uh, when you have over two dozen states suing yep. the federal government over that rule, it's not surprising and not, that the court might have said, let's wait a minute. Let's wait a minute and hold off, uh, you know, because these states have to get going. And if the, all that's going to happen is we're going to find that the EPA has to go back and redo its work, uh, we should be a little bit more cautious. So it's really hard to interpret what that stay meant, but obviously it was, uh, as you say, unprecedented and surprising to everyone, uh, even even in the folks who are arguing uh, on behalf of the states and the business groups. Yeah, and so uh, that's one case, but it also shows you why this is so important and why I mean, that's a big case. It's a huge uh, decision, uh, whatever the courts are going to decide now. And right now, you, 
uh, have what's set up. You know, many one of the one of the issues that's uh, going on, one of the questions going on now with respect to the nomination of a successor is that if you have a four-four split on some of these big cases, sure. yep. which have already been uh, are now going to be heard, that means the lower court opinion stands. So some cases where you might have expected a five-four ma- uh, majority are now going to uphold. Uh, decisions that you might not want. So it's, I think that as we start thinking about, are you really not going to nominate a, you know, a, have a new Supreme Court justice? I think people are going to start to think, what are the Whoa. actual implications of yeah. this? Yeah. Uh, what's going to happen with respect to the the, the power plan uh, case, et cetera. We are talking here in the studio with Wharton Professor Eric Ortz and also Kerry Colonisi of uh, Penn Law joins us here in the studio. We're talking about the uh, the life of uh, Justice Antonin Scalia. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Now, obviously, as Eric mentioned, this has become a very important issue that is in the news and probably going to be in the news for quite some time and that President Obama said he would like to nominate somebody quickly. The Senate has already basically said, well, I don't care what you think. We're going to we're going to hold this off till till the a new president is is elected. So, how many realistic decisions are we talking about here in the next, you know, 10 months? Till we get to the new election and maybe even a period of time, could we be talking about a holdup, a 4-4 holdup that could go back to the lower court? Well, we've got a number of really important cases that are before the current court. Uh, we've got if you just take most of the hot button issues in America today, affirmative action, yep. abortion, immigration. And an important case on uh, on unions and labor rights. Uh, among the course, the cases that the court is currently considering in its current term, that now uh, are unlikely to go the way that uh, the, the the previous conservative majority would have taken it. Uh, this is uh, this is a very contentious uh, issue for America, which is. Uh, Somewhat surprising because ordinarily the Supreme Court figures into uh, the presidential elections a little bit. Yeah. Some of the some some folks are really concerned about it, but most Americans aren't. However, I think with the Republican leadership saying they're not going to move forward, uh, I think they've handed a, a, a an issue to the Democrats to really uh, stir up their base and show how important the Supreme Court is to them. I think right now, if I had to guess, uh, the, the Republicans have been much more concerned about the judiciary after the gay marriage case and after the Affordable Care yeah, Act litigation. Yeah. Uh, but now, uh, if indeed uh, the Senate's going to, to stall and hold this out over to the next administration, then the Democrats uh, will see that they have to elect their own if they want to, uh, uh, to affect the court. I think it was Alexis de Tocqueville who observed that there's never a big political question in the United States that doesn't ultimately become a legal and judicial question. <laughs> and so uh, Kerry just listed all that, and we can see why this is, uh, this is causing a lot of controversy. And it, it's difficult to predict what's going to happen. It's true that the, uh, the, the Republican majority leader, uh, Ted Cruz, is, 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 is taking this issue and making it a centerpiece of his yep. campaign. So I think we see, a, we see a parallel to the shut the government down approach. Now, the question is whether... On reflection, everyone sees that as the best strategy because, of course, I think it's, I think it's uh, most people would agree that the shut the government down gambit didn't really work out very yeah. well. 
And so the idea that you're not going to follow the Constitution and, and, and have hearings about a Supreme Court nominee, and there been, uh, there, this has not been done before. Uh, there's, a, there's a study uh, that some historians have done about this, and there's not much precedent for just saying, well, we're not going to have any hearings about this. Uh, right. It's relatively early in the year. Most uh, confirmation hearings what take maybe 100 days or something, a couple months. Yeah. So the idea that you're really going to hold this up all the way through till January, <laughs> the, you know, it seems uh, it seems like that's going to be difficult. But we're we're in such a politicized uh, world, and as Carrie is mentioning, these issues are so large yeah. in how they come out. What the result is that. It very well could be that we have a uh, unprecedented lockup of this uh, this appointment process. My own feeling is that uh, I think that the Obama administration and the president himself is going to look at this and say, "What I'm going to do is try to appoint a very con- a relatively conservative, middle of the road kind of candidate." Yeah. And then it then once everyone starts looking at that candidate, my pick is I've predicted Srinivasan, who is a D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals judge. He's Indian American. You'd have the first Indian American. Comes from Kansas originally. Uh, was is uh, Stanford MBA, JD, and so he's a West Coast guy. I th- he he worked in the George W. Bush uh, Solicitor General's office as mm-hmm. well as the Obama office. He was confirmed by the Senate only in 2013, 93 to zero. 97 so you, you, to zero. Yeah. Well, 97 yeah. to zero. Yeah. But you put yeah. someone you put someone forward like that, and then I think it over time. It becomes very difficult to say, what's what's wrong with this guy? Right. And, and you might even start to see if and I don't know his yeah. record particularly where some of these cases would actually come out in the way that say business interest would want them to come out, or even on you know you don't you don't know the jurisprudence, but if you have once you put someone on the Supreme Court, presidents of both parties have sometimes realized that that person is going in a different way than they thought they were going to go, and so I think. That would be my 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 prediction. Others have predicted that Obama will appoint an African American. Uh, there's one uh, uh, Tom Goldstein who uh, litigates a lot in the Supreme Court, and mm-hmm. so he has a lot closer knowledge than I might about it. Has uh, and others have said he'll uh, that Obama will appoint uh, Loretta Lynch, who's the current Attorney General, or maybe Paul Watford, who's a Ninth Circuit judge. I think uh, I my sense is that. The Obama administration will not want to politicize this issue more. Right. Yep. By have it by by naming an African American, but I might be wrong. But in 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 potentially doing that, in putting somebody in that maybe more on the conservative end of things, if they put that out there and, and you know say this is our, our nominee, it then puts the pressure on the Republicans to actually bring this person up for. For review. Right. I mean, you have to do that at that point, correct? Well, they will look uh, even more obstructionist than they right. look right now. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. The other interesting thing, speaking about the, you know, the voting numbers that you mentioned, uh, and, and obviously it was a much different time, but Antonin Scalia was a 98 to nothing yeah. election yep. in, onto the Supreme Court. President in, Reagan. Yeah. Yep. In terms of the history of, of justices being you know nominated and, and, and approved to the Supreme Court— how rare is 98 to nothing or 97 to nothing or whatever that number ends up being? Well, this is a, you know, this is a, a sign of the times we're living in now with, uh, you know, extreme polarization of the parties. And, and one thing that I think those of us in the legal academy and the legal profession 
I think, worry about is how does all this play to the uh, public's uh, acceptance and legitimacy of our democratic constitutional form of government? Right now, the uh, public uh, uh, trust in the Supreme Court is uh, lower than uh, than it's been in a long time. Uh, and uh, and that's uh, something that it's hard to see coming out of this pol- contentious political battle yeah. uh, surviving intact. And I think if you look back at uh, Justice Scalia's confirmation, and it was, uh, it was <coughs> unanimous, that was a period where uh, you looked at this judge. He was a very well-known legal scholar, obviously qualified, yep. obviously competent, clearly had a conservative uh, uh, point of view, but the general sense was, well, if you have a Republican president, of course they're going to have a you're going to they're going to appoint someone who has a, that kind of sure. generally a, a point of view that's consistent with yours. And so we've we've gone away from that. I think it started with, uh, and and both sides of I think the aisle have responsibility for that. The Robert Bork uh, uh, confirmation, yeah. uh, many people p- point to as the beginning, and that's a, that's a case where you also had a very distinguished. Uh, jurist who was appointed, but there was pretty much a, a political uh, disagreement. Now you can, as I, uh, you know, Tocqueville's right; these issues are not non-political. But it's, I think the, um, I think it would be good if, from from the point of view that Carrie's suggesting, if both sides could kind of come together and and maybe <laughs> have some have some more agreement about trying to confirm each other's picks, as long as they're within the zone of competence and, uh, and, and and achievement that you want. That's but that's, uh, that's easy to say on well, radio. I was going to say, we're, we're all sitting here with smiles on our faces. Like, we know that yeah. that's not really not, not a possibility of happening. All one has to do is look at political discourse today. Yeah. The Republican presidential debate over the weekend being an example where where we have such a ready acceptance, it seems, of ad hominem attacks. I mean, one of the maybe small ironies uh, about this particular uh, contest over who will replace Justice Scalia is that in some of his dissenting opinions, Justice Scalia uh, really shamed the the tone uh, of judicial discourse, at least. And one study showed that out of all the uses of sarcasm found in uh, (laughs) judicial uh, opinions of the Supreme Court, that he made up more than, his opinions alone made up more than half of those. Uh, you know, and he was prone to calling uh, uh, his colleagues' uh, opinions uh, nonsense, uh, yeah. uh, pretentious, egotistical, <laughs> gobbledygook. Yeah. These are yeah. some phrases that Irrational. appear in some of his dissents. We're talking with uh, Eric Ortz, uh, Wharton Professor of Legal Studies and Business Ethics. Uh, also here in the studio with us is uh, Carrie Colonisi, who is a professor of law and political science here at the University of Pennsylvania. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. There was an interesting comment that I read in one of the articles over the weekend that that talked about uh, a comment by uh, Judge Richard Posner, who talked about... uh, Justice Scalia probably being maybe the most influential justice of the last 25 years. Do you, do you agree with that? He, he, he uh, had a tremendous uh, impact on the way lawyers and judges think about the law. And that might be a bigger impact and influence than is reflected in the number of times he was writing the majority opinion. Yeah. But the... Uh, 
uh, he, he didn't. He hasn't succeeded uh, in the constitutional area with promoting, uh, or at least converting everyone to originalism. Yeah. Uh, but he certainly met, he's made that the the approach to constitutional interpretation that everyone has to grapple with. When it comes to interpreting statutes, I think he's had much more influence. And today, quite frankly, much of the work of judges around the country is grappling with statutes. And here he said we shouldn't, as Eric mentioned at the outset, we shouldn't delve into the legislative history. We should really focus on just what the text of the statute says and what it means, uh, relying on dictionaries and, and, and our plain meaning of these terms. And, and that's that's been enormously influential. And, and in some respects, kind of leaving a, a path for uh, judges at lower courts to kind of understand the path that they should probably take. Right. That's right. I mean, one of the one of his guiding principles at the Supreme Court level was well, how can we adopt rules that will constrain lower court judges? Yeah. Gary. Yeah, I think I think that that's right. That he had that jurisprudential effect, and I mentioned that as we talked about before. The other thing that I think we'll miss about him is that he was extremely active on the bench and modeled that way of behaving mm-hmm. for other judges in, in in various places, and would was very active, quick questioner of the litigants before the court, and we'll probably miss that a little bit. I think there are still. There are judges, uh, there are justices on the court that are 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 also continue to be very active in that way. But that's one thing I think that will. He, he was quite colorful in that in that role, I think, and will, will he'll be missed in that respect. Clearly, no shrinking violet. I think the, <laughs> I think the the you know really when you come down to it, the the impact that he has is owing to probably three main factors. One, the longevity that he had on the yep. court, thirty mm-hmm. years of service. Yep. You're going to have an impact. Second, the fact that he was not afraid to speak up during oral argument and not afraid to make his points uh, known even in dissent. And the third was he was just incredibly smart, incredibly bright lawyer, mm-hmm. uh, super intellect that and constructed arguments in defense of originalism and textualism that have really won a lot of people over. How much of, of what he was able to bring to the court, though, you think can carry over in the court over the next several decades with the new justice, whoever that may be that comes in, but just the court as a whole, remembering what he brought and, and how much that may affect you know, the court going forward. Well, I think in, in a lot of the issues that lawyers care about, you know, the craft of, of making decisions yep. and interpreting statutes, uh, I think he will have a lasting impact for many decades to come. Uh, judges uh, following uh, Justice Scalia will 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 learn so much about uh, about the value of focusing on the text. I teach my students whether you're a textualist or not, you have to start with the text and then the next thing you can look at is the text and the next thing is the text and the text. I mean it really is uh, important and that's that's something by the way that, that that we should also say is that Justice Scalia will continue to have influence because his opinions are so well crafted mm-hmm. and quite frankly entertaining to read. My students really love to read Scalia opinions, whether they agree with him or not. And that kind of uh, engagement of the next generation of legal minds is going to have, I think, a, a tremendous amount of influence. Yeah, and I, I guess I would add that we do have to recognize that and should recognize that there is a political aspect to this in the sense that I think Justice Scalia was an example of extremely influential judges who were actually active in a movement 
to uh, take a particular kind of view mm-hmm. about law yep. and get judges on the court who would take that view uh, get um, and, and, it's, and it's part of a political uh, it's a part of a political view and so we can't forget that part and so if you look at what are the influ- what's the influence of that going to be part of that's going to depend on whether that view of the judicial role and the um, the Constitution, that kind of a uh, that kind of a perception, whether that's going to be the one yeah. that we ultimately will follow, and that actually does depend on who gets elected president, because one person will appoint judges in that direction, yeah. and one will appoint judges in another direction, and so you don't know what that what that future is up for grabs, and that's why this is so controversial now as to who his replacement will be. Final question. I mean, what, what we talked about before, Kerry, do you think that the possibility of a more conservative-leaning justice being pitched forward to the to the uh, Supreme Court is a possibility in the in the next few months, and somebody that may actually be brought up, you know, in the next few months before we get the presidential election, or do you think this will play out a lot longer than probably a lot of people would like? Well, I, I'm not going to uh, hazard a guess in this yeah. uh, contentious times. I think that it is likely that uh, it would be smart for the Obama administration to pick a more moderate uh, justice than maybe some of the uh, President Obama's current uh, uh, or past appointees uh, for, for the reasons that Eric laid out. I think one thing I can predict with an absolute certainty is that whoever fills this vacancy in the court and whoever, quite frankly, fills the next one or two that will come along probably in the next few years, uh, it will be a long time before we have someone sure. of Justice Scalia's intellect and stature. Great to have you both here. Thanks very much for coming in. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.